Okay, let's uh, go ahead and get started. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out to this event. This is an event sponsored by the Committee on Public Lectures here at Princeton University, and I'm Sam Wong, Chair of the Committee on Public Lectures. Uh, before we start, please turn your cell phones, pagers, and other devices to a setting that makes me unaware that you have them. Uh, that'd be great. Uh, let's see. So uh, these lectures are announced on the website lectures.princeton.edu and are also um, cablecast and webcast for the most part. So I encourage you all to go to our website and read about them. Uh, later this week, we have the neurologist V.S. Ramachandran, and uh, we have many, many other interesting speakers uh, on the schedule, including uh, we recently booked John Waters for the spring. So it's a wide variety of people and uh, points of view. Tonight's lecture is a panel. It's a panel sponsored by the Stafford Lytle Lecture Series. This is a fund founded in 1899 with a gift of $10,000 by Henry Stafford Lytle of the class of 1844. Mr. Lytle was a lawyer by profession, and he was active in New Jersey politics and the first president of the New York and Long Branch Railroad Company. Uh, according to Dean Andrew West, Princeton, quote, took the place of the wife, home, and children he never had. He died in 1904. And at his initial suggestion, this series was uh, talks given every year by former President Grover Cleveland. And then after Mr. Cleveland died, then it was broadened out to include other people who are not Mr. Cleveland. Um, <laughs> and uh, and others, those other lecturers included um, President Theodore Roosevelt, a Republican, uh, Albert Einstein, Arnold Schoenberg, and Thurgood Marshall. In the last few years, we've had James Fallows, George Packer, Seymour Hirsch, uh, Stephen Levitt, and Ian Baruma. Now tonight is a panel discussion that was cooked up in conjunction with uh, Professor Kevin Cruz, with a, who's an associate professor of history, and Professor Julian Zelizer, who is professor of history and public affairs, both here at Princeton University. And they uh, are working on American conservatism as an academic subject, and this is a topic to which the panel will speak tonight. Um, and so I'm going to turn this over without further ado to Professor Cruz. Thank you so much, Sam, uh, both for uh, helping to bring this great panel together, but also for inviting uh, Julian and I to take part. Um, I know when you talk about the future of American politics, historians are naturally uh, who you think of, uh, but uh, we're, we're happy to be here. Uh, our four panelists today are all well known for their commentary on contemporary politics and society. Uh, well, each brings his or her own perspective to the subject. Uh, they're all actively engaged in a, in a project, I think, to uh, uh, reinvigorate and revitalize modern conservatism. We brought them to campus this afternoon so that we might benefit from the collected insights and, and moreover, so that they might talk to one another uh, uh, from in a format a little livelier than the printed page. And together they will address the current state of conservatism in America and its prospects for the future. Uh, without further ado, I just want to introduce our four panelists and give them the floor. Ross Douthat is a columnist for the New York Times, where he has the honor of being the youngest op-ed columnist in the paper's history. He is the author of Privilege, Harvard and the Education of the Ruling Class, a sharp critique of that university, which takes it to task for an institutional culture that he sees as largely complacent and self-congratulatory. He is also co-author with uh, Raihan Salam of Grand New Party, How Republicans Can Win the Working Class and Save the American Dream, a book that sets forth a blueprint for a new moderate conservatism, which the authors hope can be used to revive the Republican Party uh, during the age of Obama. David Frum is currently a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and previously a special assistant to President George W. Bush. He's the author of six books, 
including the excellent account of the early years of the Bush administration, The Right Man, The Surprise Presidency of George W. Bush. Two of his other works have been thoughtful assessments of the past, present, and future of the Republican Party, Dead Right, his excellent 1994 assessment of both the successes and shortcomings of the Reagan Revolution, and Comeback, Conservatism That Can Win Again, which was published recently in 2007. In keeping with those interests, he founded NewMajority.com, a website, quote, dedicated to the modernization and renewal of the Republican Party and the conservative movement. Daniel Larison is contributing editor for the American Conservative. That magazine also hosts his outstanding blog, Unomia, which is certainly one of the more independent and innovative voices in the conservative blogosphere today. Larison also writes a column for The Week Online. In addition, he recently earned his doctoral degree from the University of Chicago with a specialization in Byzantine history. Virginia, excuse me, Virginia Pastoral, Princeton class of 82, one of our own, is a contributing editor for The Atlantic. She previously served as editor for Reason Magazine and worked as a columnist for Forbes and for the business section of the New York Times. She's the author of two books, The Substance of Style and The Future and Its Enemies. She's currently writing a third book on glamour for the free press and it is editor-in-chief of deepglamour.net. With that, I'll turn it over to Ross. Well, thank you, Professor Cruz. Um, thanks to the committee and to the university for having me and having us here today. Um, it's always a delight to be able to talk about the future of conservatism um, because it implies that it has a future. The mere existence of this panel is reason for hope. Um, but there have been, I think, a number of conversations, um, many of which I've been a part of on this subject over the past few years. And the conversations always tend to start on a pessimistic note. So I thought I would try and begin on an optimistic note and talk about how the age of Obama has been in certain ways very good for conservatism, or at least for conservatism's hold on the American public. Um, I think that if you look back across the last five or ten years and look at trends in American public opinion, those trends have overwhelmingly been pushing the country gradually towards the left. Um, and there's been an interesting and vigorous debate among American right-wingers, um, especially during the last two election cycles, about where the conservative movement and the Republican Party lost their way. And many conservatives have argued pretty straightforwardly that um, the Republican Party lost its way by ceasing to be conservative, that the public elected the Republicans to be conservatives, to um, as particularly to limit government and cut taxes and so on, and that during the age of Bush, the party drifted from this core mission and lost the Congress and then the presidency as a result. Um, the minority opinion to which I subscribe is that actually, yes, there, there was a great deal of truth to the conservative critique of the Republican Party over the last five, eight, ten years. But in fact, Republican losses have been driven by deeper trends um, in the American public's views of a broad set of issues. Um, and this is true across really the spectrum of political issues. It's true on social issues, especially issues like gay marriage and gay rights and immigration. It's true on economic issues. Um, if you look at um, long-term polling data um, across this spectrum of issues, you find that in the, starting in the mid to late 1990s and continuing across the presidency of George W. Bush, albeit with a moment right around 9-11 where the country moved 
sharply back towards the right, the overall trajectory has been leftward. And this is in keeping with both deep demographic trends in the United States, um, particularly the trends towards um, higher and higher immigration rates, low-skilled immigration rates, um, uh, particularly from Mexico, uh, because Hispanic voters in particular tend to be more economically liberal in particular and in favor of a larger government role in the economy. And it's also driven by trends in public opinion among the young. And if you look at polling data on the generation that came of age uh, really in the age of Bush, but in the age of Clinton and the age of Bush, that generation is more liberal than their parents' generation was at the same age. So keep in mind, it's not just that young people tend to be more liberal than their parents. It's that at the same age, this generation was more liberal than their parents on every issue, I believe, except abortion and social security. They're just as divided as their parents on abortion and slightly more favorably disposed towards personal accounts and social security. But on every other issue, um, economic, social, and so on, they tend to be more liberal than their parents. So this, this, was, this was a bleak picture for American conservatives, and it's one um, that I, I think has basically sort of dominated my own take on the conservative predicament. But if you look at American trends in public opinion across the first year of the Obama era, suddenly that long-term deep trend that seemed like it was going to push American politics steadily to the left across the last 25 years has perhaps temporarily, but in real ways, reversed itself. And if you look at on, on questions where in the midst of an economic crisis you would not expect conservative opinion, like do you think government is doing too little or too much at the present time? Who do you distrust more, big, big government or big business? Americans have moved significantly to the right even across the last six to 12 months. Americans have become, again, in, in not in enormous ways, but in, you know, a shift of five percentage points, three percentage points, six percentage points, more pro-life, more likely to say favorable things about ideas about traditional values and so on. Um, so clearly, and we, one could argue endlessly over what, what the cause of this is, whether it's just completely that Barack Obama is overreaching or whether it's, it's um, the particular result of um, public backlash against government bailouts and so on. But whatever the cause, there is clearly an opportunity here for conservatism that hasn't existed really um, going back across the entire Bush era. And so it's, it's not, not perhaps as great as the opportunity for conservatives that existed in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, but it's certainly a significant opportunity. Um, where the public is open to conservative arguments, um, whether on social or economic issues, in ways that they have not been perhaps in the last decade, certainly in the last five years. So that's the good news for American conservatism. Uh, the bad news for American conservatism is that it, it seems at the present moment that the Republican Party and the conservative movement, and I'm going to speak of them interchangeably because I think that that's a fair way to assess their relationship at the moment. It used to be that there was a Republican Party that really existed independently from the conservative movement. And I think as the Republican Party has shrunk and as the conservative movement has become more potent within the party, that distinction has ceased to be as meaningful as it once was. So on both fronts, I think that um, conservatism, both as a movement and as a political party, is ill-prepared to capitalize on this opportunity. And it's, it's interesting um, I think that Princeton has done a fantastic job today of assembling an incredibly diverse panel of conservative voices or right-of-center voices. 
um, all of whom would be damned as heretics for different reasons by the actual existing conservative movement. And so you can proceed here from, um, you know, Virginia's libertarianism through Daniel's um, paleoconservatism, I don't want to, you know, through, through David's version of reform conservatism and my own version of reform conservatism, vastly different. Frankly, I think um, that David and Daniel could probably find a nice duel in the parking lot over foreign policy after this event is over. And yet, nonetheless, all of them, if you turned on Rush Limbaugh and read to Rush Limbaugh any of the things that, um, that any of them have written on American politics over the last five years, Rush Limbaugh would find a reason to say these are not real conservatives. And so I think that this, in a, in a sense, encapsulates a big part of the challenge for um, conservatism today, that there is, it, it has the mentality, I think, in certain respects of the American left in the 1980s, and particularly, um, and I say this with apologies to the wonderful campus I find myself on, the campus left of that era, the sort of the obsession on the one hand with sort of idealized versions of a, particularly, a particular kind of ideological politics. So you would spend endless hours debating what the socialist utopia would look like without having any means of bringing the socialist utopia into being. And similarly, conservatives can now spend endless hours talking about how best to slay the monster of statism, socialism, or liberal fascism without having a practical political agenda to put into practice, combined, combined with an obsession with reading people out, out of your movement and out of that circle. Um, but I don't want to say, I, I think in a way it's too easy to simply come and in a forum like this talk about, say, the problem of talk radio or the problem of Rush Limbaugh or the problem of Glenn Beck, because I think that in a sense what you have is a, pro a, a problem in a way among Republican office holders um, today, where I think that much more, frankly, than even the Democratic Party in the 1980s, there is a resistance among Republican office holders to taking the intellectual work that conservatives are doing and trying to put it into practice. Um, and I think that this problem exists for a number of reasons, but I think that in an, in an ideal world, the, Ameri the American Republican Party would include in its ranks politicians who are, let's say, Virginia Postrel Republicans. Maybe they would be in California. They would be, you know, futurists, op techno-optimists, and libertarians. It would include in its ranks politicians who actually take David Frum's blueprint for the Republican Party and put it into action. So Rudy Giuliani, candidate for president, instead of just um, having David Frum as an advisor who wasn't listened to would actually take David Frum's ideas and run a campaign on them. And there would be candidates and politicians perhaps in the South, perhaps in the Southwest, who would be Daniel Larison, small government, non-interventionist foreign policy Republicans. And then there would be candidates maybe, let's say, in the upper Midwest who would be Sam's Club Republicans focused on um, you know, ideas, the interests and issues, economic issues pertaining to the working and middle classes. That, I think, is what the Republican Party needs. It does not need a single specific blueprint for political success, political dominance, a political recovery. It needs a diversity of politicians um, making arguments with each other about what the future of, of conservatism and the Republican Party ought to be. And now, 
I say this in the knowledge that there's always going to be a huge gap between what policy wonks and intellectuals talk about and what politicians do. But I would conclude by saying that we should, conservatives should look at the last three American presidents, all of whom, even George W. Bush, were in their time real political successes. And all of them have been politicians who in different ways broke the mold of what their party expected them to be and had a definite blueprint for where they wanted either liberalism or conservatism to go. And so Bill Clinton in the early 1990s was the embodiment of a particular set of ideas about a new Democratic Party, one that would be closer to the political center, more moderate, more open to ideas about crime and welfare and so on that Republicans had been pushing for many years. George W. Bush in 1999 and 2000 was a quote-unquote compassionate conservative, which became a punchline, but was at the time a particular idea, perhaps a mistaken idea, but a real idea about how to lead the Republican Party out of the trap that it had found itself in the late Gingrich years. And Barack Obama, obviously, was the spokesman for a renewed and reinvigorated liberalism that wanted to put some of the compromises of the Clinton era, politics moves in cycles and so on, behind it. And all of them succeeded because they were willing, in part, to present themselves as new, but to present themselves as engaged with ideas about where their movement and their party should be going. And that, I think, more than anything, is what conservatives need. I think for all the talk about an intellectual crisis in conservatism, I think that there's an intellectual crisis perhaps in, in the way that movement conservatism wants to read certain ideas outside its circle. But I don't think there's a collapse now of conservative ideas. I think that the ideas are out there. I think what's lacking are politicians with the vigor and vision to put them into action. So on that note, I will conclude. Um, thank you all. And um, Ross, thank you for uh, uh, your directive to Rudy Giuliani to make sure uh, to pay closer attention in future. Um, uh, Rudy is, um, uh, is, is somebody who is, um, it's hard to tell him things he, he doesn't like. Um, uh, because uh, uh, he, uh, you saw what happened to that man who tried to tell him about the weasels, and uh, that, did, that didn't work so well. Um, I'm so delighted uh, to be here. Um, because this is a, a very important topic. As Ross said, this is a very distinguished panel that represents a lot of what is happening that is creative and, 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 and alive in the Republican Party. But I, I am going to succumb to the temptation that Ross um, described of starting with, with the bad news. George Orwell opens one of his essays with a very arresting image. He says when he was a, a boy, he once played a very cruel trick on a wasp. The wasp was on his uh, plate, and it was sipping jam uh, that he had left on the plate. And he took a sharp knife, and he cut the wasp in half while it was sipping. And the wasp continued to sip the, the jam for a beat or two before it noticed that half its body had gone missing. Um, and Orwell then proceeds to draw some large, uh, some rather build a rather long essay on this uh, very brutal uh, metaphor. Uh, but I think it is one, it is a metaphor that um, is worth keeping in mind for any political movement in crisis. Um, and I think that the movement that we have come to call conservatism that are, uh, really took form in the 19, uh, in, in the uh, in reaction to the New Deal that rose to ascendancy in the 1970s, that governed so powerfully and effectively in the 1980s and 1990s, is in a state of, of real crisis. The first question, the question that um, when you are looking for good news and the bad news, news in the polls, that you have to ask about the conservative set of ideas in which to which we have all given so much, is are, do conservatives face a change in the climate 
or a change in the weather. Uh, obviously, th the conservatives have been winning fewer elections recently, but it's possible to tell a story, and many conservatives do tell this story to themselves, of a series of events, unpredictable. Um, who could have predicted the financial crisis of October? Um, who could have predicted that the Iraq war would go so badly? Who could predict um, the, uh, that Medi the Medicare uh, cuts that Newt Gingrich proposed in 1995 would be so unpopular that each of a series of terribly unpredictable accidents led to a series of disappointing results? Um, but that you can see good news around the corner that these are adventitious things and that the deep strength of the conservative voting bloc that dominated American politics from about 1978 to about 1996, that that is still there. And that seems to me completely wrong that we are living through a change in the climate and that the social basis for conservative politics is changing um, in ways. I think that will ultimately change the whole American political system because when a political movement weakens, it, it, it may happen at first that its opponents gain strength, but typically it announces a change in what the debate is about. Um, that when, as Jacksons and ja anti-Jacksonians were battling and, and uh, contesting their strength, as progressives and anti-progressives in the early years of the century were battling, uh, that the thing that ultimately settled this was not that one side won, but that the question got changed. Um, and that, I think, is something that is in the process of happening now. When I say that this is a change in the climate, let me be very explicit about what I mean by that. Um, in uh, his, uh, the conservative movement, uh, what, uh, that, which began as the work of a series of um, entrepreneurs of ideas, scholars, economists, social critics, connected itself to a large dissent in American life from the answers that had governed the country from about 1930 until about 1970. Uh, this was a bit put to get aggregated all kinds of voting groups together around a very powerful platform that had answers to the problems of, uh, of the day, the problems of the, of the late 1970s. Um, one of the most important groups um, in, this, uh, in this conservative bloc was uh, the group of people uh, since it was a party of business, was the group of people who were connected to the world of entrepreneurship and economic activity, people with college degrees, people in the upper part of the income distribution. Now, let me give you a very arresting number. In the election of 1988, that's the first election where the exit polls separate out people with four years of higher education from people with more than four years of higher education. Uh, in that 1988 election, among whites with a four-year degree, the elder George Bush beat Michael Dukakis by 25 points. In the 2008 election, in that same group of people, whites with a four-year degree, John McCain barely beat Barack Obama. If you look at whites with a college degree outside the South, Barack Obama won. Probably the first Democrat to win that group since Lyndon Johnson. We don't know that exactly because in Lyndon Johnson's day, they aggregated uh, four-year degree holders with people with more education. But there were so few people with more education that since Johnson won the college educated, you have to assume he won, he, he won the, the BAs. Uh, the Democratic Party had become the party of the people with the four-year degrees. Uh, and this is not something that happened, that things were great from 1988 and then they fell off the cliff in 19, uh, 2008. Actually, the single biggest drop in that group's support for the Republican Party happens between 1988 and 1992 when they follow Ross Perot. They don't come back in 1996. They continue to vote disproportionately for Ross Perot. Uh, and um, the margin just continues to dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. Uh, that, uh, that is not a small group of people. 
um, in, the year, as, in 1990, about one-fifth of American whites had a college degree. Uh, today, almost one-third do. Um, the, the Republican Party wants to be a party of entrepreneurship. It wants to be the party of hope, growth, and opportunity, the party of markets, the par party of new technology. But all of the people who actually are involved with those things, or the, a great many of them, the people who, have, who will benefit from those things, who will contribute to those things, have massively turned their back on the Republican Party and the conservative ideas for which it stands. Why did that happen? Why did this enormous change um, occur? And there are a lot of, I, I won't go through the whole range of hypotheses because I don't want to uh, abuse my time, but let me suggest a couple of things. I mentioned before that I think the best way to think of what the ideology we call conservatism as a mass movement was that it was a set of answers to the problems of 1978. Inflation, crime, the challenge from the Soviet Union, the breakdown of social authority, uh, the, se uh, the, se uh, um, the uh, seeming ossification of the American economy, its loss of creative dynamism. And I think those are, it had pretty good answers. So good, in fact, that they solved many of those problems. Um, and when, uh, when you solve a problem, uh, yes, eventually they put up a bronze statue to you, but they do not re-elect you to say thank you again and again and again. Um, I made this point on uh, the Stephen Colbert show once, and, and Stephen Colbert said to me, well, isn't that a great lesson uh, of the dangers of solving problems and why you shouldn't do it? <laughs> um, and that is, I think, the voice of true conservatism right there. Um, Related to this, related to this sense of mission accomplished, if I may use a phrase, uh, on, on the part of conservatism, uh, are some other social changes as well. The rise of secularism. Um, you often hear it said that Islam is the fastest growing religion in the United States. That's only because we don't count no religion as a religion. If we do, that is far and away the fastest growing religion in the United States. It's because of a change, especially in the attitude of women, um, especially the more educated women who find uh, the social views of the Republican Party increasingly unacceptable. Other, other things as well. Uh, but we have, what you have is a party that is increasingly drawing more and more of its support from a smaller and smaller base. Uh, the Republican Party is the party of white people who are not poor, because people who earn less than $30,000 a year don't vote Republican, aren't conservative, but who did not complete college. Now, that remains a very large group of people, and the Republicans are able to get more and more and more of the vote out of them. Um, we are now into an area where Republicans typically get about two-thirds of the vote of that block. It may have one last hurrah in 2010. If, we, if 2010 is a low turnout election with a very high turnout among people over 65, where there are many, where of course fewer people completed college, then the Republicans may be able to do one last hurrah, uh, doing very well, gaining a lot of seats in the House of Representatives with that vote of non-poor, non-college whites. But you can see that the day of that, the, the dominant period of that coalition must have some terminus as the country becomes less white and as even more rad rad radically, rapidly, and dramatically it becomes better educated. So this points, when you say, what is the future of this movement? This points, uh, to my mind, to three possible paths for the Republican Party and the conservative world, three futures. Uh, the first future is the, is the path that it is on right now, to remain what it, what it is, to remain, in effect, the party of talk radio, uh, to see how many, can you squeeze a few more elections out of the non-poor, non-college, white voting bloc. Um, and I think this will eventually end in tears, but I won't give you a date. My old boss, Bob Bartley, at the Wall Street Journal, used to say about stock market predictions, if you give a number, don't give a date. If you give a date, don't give a number. Um, <laughs> So I, I'm, going to, I'm going to follow that rule. But the, it, it, this cannot work for very much 
longer. Um, and I think a lot of the rage and anger that you hear from talk radio is an awareness. That is, this is, the, 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 when you hear, listen to talk radio, this is not the voice of a movement in growth. This is not the voice of a movement in ascendancy. There is no confidence. There is no optimism. There is no excitement. There is only fear and anger and resentment. And, that, and those are the emotions, forgive me, of losers. Now, the second path, the second path that the Republican Party could face, and this is the path very much recommended by Ross, um, and uh, it's the path that in their way George Bush and Karl Rove uh, tried to implement, and that is the path of what you might call becoming something like a European Christian Democratic Party. Uh, to say uh, that, you know, we are the, since we are the party of socially conservative, uh, we're the party of the great middle, and especially the white middle, um, of the so- more socially conservative elements of the society, the people who are not the winners in a globalized market economy. Now, there aren't enough of those people, but maybe we can find some way through emphasizing religious themes and with a uh, very uh, uh, open attitude toward immigration of, ex- of laterally extending our, uh, what we are today to include uh, these... Um, more religious newcomers among the immigrants, especially the Hispanics, and to build a party that will be, um, that will be the party that was indicated by the Bush-Rove strategy, but that Bush and Rove never, in fact, delivered on because their economic policies didn't really serve the interests of those people very well. Um, that might work uh, politically. Uh, it would have to include me out um, because I, I don't think I am interested in uh, being a member of, of a Christian Democratic Party. I, I think, and I've, I've become a little bit more radical in my thinking about some of these issues since I, I published my book. And I was, I, for me, I want to be in the party of, of economic dynamism and economic opportunity and comp- competition and globalism and free trade. And that's not what this party would be. Uh, but it is a party, and you can see that the, that the if as issues. As we cease, just as we cease to talk about the Bank of the United States, and just as we cease to talk about slavery, and just as we cease to talk about our cities uh, governed corruptly, should they be governed in a more professional way, we may someday cease to talk about the welfare state. And we may talk, which is the great dividing line in the politics of the 70s and 80s, and we may have a conversation about globalization. We may have a conversation about inequality. And you can imagine a different formation of parties around a different question. Um, and, and in that case, that this, the Duthat, the Rove party, um, Ross, is, uh, R- Ross has the sincerity and conviction and actual content to um, substantiate what for, for Bush and Rove was really a political strategy, but that might work. I want to offer a, thir- a, a, a third way, which I think not only might work, but might deserve to work. Um, and that is to reinvigorate um, the Hamiltonian tradition of conservatism and to make the dividing line, if there's to be a dividing line over issues of opportunity and dynamism, um, to be one where my party is the one that is on, uh, that is on the side um, of, of growth and economic dynamism. What would such a party look like? And I have four recommendations when I talk to Republican audiences, and I'm out of time, so I'll do them very quickly. The first is you have to have an economic message that is relevant. Um, that you have to stop talking about the tax burden, which did indeed grow very crushingly heavy through the 1970s, but which is not so salient an issue today, and focus on the most urgent issues, economic issues of today, which are first, um, the unsustainability of the, of the debt structure that the United States is accumulating for itself, and second, and related, this, um, the dysfunction of the American health care system. 16% of the economy, 8% of it paid by government. It just cannot go on as it is, and as uh, my AI colleague Herb Stein used to say, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. So will this. Step, uh, step two, 
uh, you need to integrate environmental thinking into the very DNA of who you are as a political party. Not that you have to outbid the other party, but it's, uh, that to, be, uh, to integrate it in the way that de Democrats had to integrate defense into their thinking in the 1980s if they were to be competitive. They didn't have to do more on defense than the Republicans, but they had to do enough not nothing. Uh, so that, that, this new, that this new kind of conservatism, if it's going to win and reconnect with that growing population of educated Americans, has to build the environmental consciousness into its very being. Third, you have to, the Republican Party has to rethink its stance on social issues. That doesn't mean jettison social conservatism. The country is split down the middle on abortion. The pro-choice um, pro people have a party. The pro-life people are entitled to one too. But like those amplifiers in Spinal Tap, you're Views on this question do not need permanently to be set to 11. Um, <laughs> six is also a perfectly valid number. Uh, <laughs> finally, and number four, that you need to, to reconnect to the great American, the great Republican tradition of integrity, competence, and, uh, in administration. That uh, at, the local, at the local level, uh, um, since World War II, uh, uh, the, the dividing line of the politics has been Tammany Hall-type machines downtown, efficient and effective government out in the suburbs, and that was an identity that the Republican Party had. It was showed up in all kinds of poll measurements. Um, that, is, that is something that has to be reachieved, and that is one of the ways that the Bush administration's very painful legacy for the Republican Party through Iraq and Katrina, that it left behind a record of non-performance. Um, and if the Republican Party is not going to be the party of heart um, and it's going to lose that competition, it needs to be the party of head. It needs to be the party that gets things done, the party of serious people. And that is a tradition that we need to rediscover. And that's one more reason why I think being the party of talk radio is so very lethal, because if there's anything that is anti antithetical to this vision I'm describing of a new effective party, it is the world of anti-information and pretend fact uh, that comes from so much of the conservative talk industry. And I thank you for your attention. Thank you all for coming. Uh, thanks to the, uh, the committee and uh, to our moderators and to uh, my fellow panelists. Uh, we've already heard uh, many uh, very good ideas so far. Uh, I think uh, Ross's talk about looking at uh, a party that is more politically diverse and, and less uniform is generally uh, much more desirable and, and much more in line, actually, with some of the things I'll be talking about. And, but as the resident pessimist, I should start uh, with uh, some of the, the problems. As a political movement, conservatism in its present form does not have much of a future. Having wedded itself to the Republican Party, movement conservatism has become almost wholly dependent on the party for its direction and ideas. This is particularly unfortunate for the movement when the party clearly seems to lack both. Since the movement has thrown in its lot with the GOP, it has no influence in any other party and seems to almost take pride in its self-imposed exile from the rest of the country. But if we were speaking of conservatism apart from the movement, a temperamental conservatism that values restraint and prudence and has a respect for limits, there are small traces of it to be found here and there in both parties. In the Democratic Party, we find it occasionally when it comes to the conduct of foreign affairs, uh, but it is decidedly lacking in every other area of policy. Likewise, there are traces of this conservatism among Republicans, but these vanish the moment the subject turns to matters of war, national security, and international relations. And that wasn't always the case, but it has become that way. 
On the whole, however, temperamental conservatism remains marginal to party politics because it resists the simplifications and distortions that mass political mobilization seems to require. If conservatism is the negation of ideology, it will not gain much purchase in political parties that thrive on ideologies constructed to serve their immediate needs. And I imagine this is where uh, my fellow panelists and I will disagree the most. Temperamental conservatism is that which is exhibited in a conservative disposition. What does that mean? This is a disposition or mentality that rejects ideological systems, cultivates a healthy respect for inherited wisdom, and rebels against the concentration of power and wealth that breed corruption and abuse of government. And this has tended to lose ground each time the movement has succeeded in defining conservatism as a programmatic agenda and as a counter-ideology. To put it more directly, temperamental conservatism teaches that power corrupts and must be as widely distributed as possible, while the movement has seemed to be organized primarily for the acquisition and retention of power and seems to prefer to concentrate as much power in the hands of the executive, uh, both for, for national security reasons and for its own uh, access to power. The movement loses much of its intellectual coherence or moral vision the more embedded it has become in party politics. At the same time, the more movement conservatism changes in practice to acquire political gains, the more intensely most movement conservatives emphasize that they have never wavered or changed. Those interested in redefining or reforming conservatism to meet political requirements of the day are probably most acutely aware of the changeable nature of the movement. And certainly our, our panel uh, is well aware of this. Such reformers are understandably skeptical about calls for a return to first principles, which they have usually seen honored in the breach. And so they have the least patience with the gauntlet movement activists make presidential and other candidates run each election year. However, most movement conservatives, whether they are defined as so-called traditionalists or reformers, in David Brooks' forma uh, formulation, remain captive to certain basically anti-conservative ideological tenets. Chief among these, and what I think is the most significant problem of American conservatism today, is an American nationalism uh, that has distorting effects on both policy and political culture. The future of American conservatism depends greatly on challenging this nationalism on both a cultural and a policy level, cultivating instead a deeper respect for both localities and regions on the one hand and foreign nations on the other. One of the paradoxes of conservative political thought over the last few decades is the tremendous rhetorical emphasis conservatives have placed on local control, states' rights, and decentralization of power, while embracing many policies pertaining to trade, domestic economy, and foreign affairs that have tended to erode local and regional economies and cultures, intruded on matters previously reserved to the states, and centralized power in the nation's capital. The more obvious contradiction has been the largely rhetorical rejection of government activism at home combined with an unrestrained appetite for activism overseas. These contradictions have become debilitating and discrediting, and the future and quality of political conservatism depend on correcting these with newfound respect for restraint and limits and opposition to concentrated wealth and power. Any reformed conservatism unwilling to challenge corporate interests and to reduce the size of the warfare state will at best be treating the symptoms of the maladies afflicting political conservatives and their preferred party. Earlier, we heard that this lecture series was uh, inaugurated to provide a forum for former President Grover Cleveland, and it is fitting that, uh, that that's the case. Uh, in fact, I think the example of President Cleveland in his conduct of foreign policy and his anti-imperialist activism after his second term ought to be a touchstone for conservatives and for all of us. 
his Republican anti-imperialism, his interest in the rights of all nations, and his conviction that diplomacy and international law were the best mechanisms for resolving disputes between states, offer remedies to many of our present predicaments as a nation and provide a model of properly conservative governance and conduct of foreign policy. But when we survey likely Republican candidates for the next presidential election, we do not see any major political figures that are going to follow this example or curb the aggressive and confrontational policies that seem to have become synonymous with conservatism in the mind of the public. On the contrary, we see many potential competitors, from Mitt Romney to Vicentorum to Tim Pawlenty, who show every sign of wanting to embrace an aggressive hubristic Americanism as a significant part of their message and who wish to portray the president as an appeaser intent on surrendering to America's enemies. In addition to being groundless, these criticisms reveal that conservatives have learned nothing from their recent repudiations by the public. Indeed, aside from opposition to democratic health care plans, the central theme of conservative criticism of the current administration seems to be a panicked reaction against virtually every foreign policy decision made by the new president. And this reaction has often expressed itself through a ramped-up nationalism that portrays even the most tepid rhetorical acknowledgement of the rights of other nations as treachery, weakness, or the betrayal of American interests. This seems to me a self-destructive and self-marginalizing course, as, as self-destructive and self-marginalizing as the, uh, as the course that David Frum was outlining in the status quo of talk radio. And I think this has been shown in the last two elections uh, and will probably be shown in the next presidential election. Not understanding that it was their grievous foreign policy errors that helped turn the country against them, leading Republicans continue to believe that harping on strength and resolve will restore the public's trust in the party. And the movement has been cheering them on pretty much every step of the way. Looking out more broadly over the long term, over the next few decades, there will continue to be some sort of organized political conservatism, and it will have a sizable role in the party. There are too many institutions and too many activists involved uh, for the movement simply to wither away. But it has less and less appeal for rising generations of Americans, and it will become increasingly irrelevant to the public if the movement fails to adapt to them. And on this, I think uh, all of us are in general agreement. We may differ about what exactly needs to be done to adapt, but on this we're, we're on the same page. Part of this is a function of the changing ethnic and religious makeup of new generations of Americans, as a more diverse and secular population finds little attractive in today's conservatism. So the right's temptation in the coming decade will be to ratchet up this nationalist rhetoric to compensate for its loss of imagination and to mask its long-term weaknesses. But I think it will find itself frustrated time and again by an American public that is patriotic, but which has little interest in confusing that patriotism with aggressive policies overseas and additional security measures at home. Depending on how we define the idea of the far right, there are very, two very different possibilities. One is a far right of self-marginalizing conspiracy theorists who hate liberals more than they love liberty, as John Lukash described many conservatives 25 years ago, and the other is one of conservatives and libertarians appalled by lost civil liberties, unnecessary warfare, and the malign neglect of middle-class America that have been the products of the height of political conservative power. If they would represent most Americans, especially the next generations of Americans, conservatives will need to abandon the bad habits acquired over at least the last 20 years of seeing threats where none exists, exaggerating the threats that do, and defining their devotion to country in no small part by their willingness to vilify and antagonize other nations. 
There are no guarantees that political success will result from recovering principles of temperamental conservatism, these being principles of restraint, prudence, and respect for the wisdom of our constitutional and religious traditions. But we have seen what political and policy disasters come from ignoring them. Conservatives can no longer afford to keep ignoring them, and neither can our country. Thank you. Well, I, uh, it's interesting. I, first of all, I want to thank the committee and the organizers and the university, and it's a pleasure to be here, and especially not having to wear black and orange jacket. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I, it's very interesting to me to see how we just went alphabetically. There was no, you know, complex thought behind the order in which we spoke. Um, which makes it all the more interesting that we broke very easily between uh, Ross and David, who are very engaged in thinking about the future of the Republican Party and winning elections, as well as you know what would be good policy if you did win elections. And Daniel and me, we're more interested in what's right, I guess to say. <laughs> I, I don't mean that as an insult to you. Uh, but I mean, we're, we're, we're theorists, I guess. Um, and, and I feel rather odd being here on this panel, despite being friends for many, many years with David and, and for fewer but, but a good number uh, with Ross and also having been a former colleague of Ross. Because, first of all, I don't see my intellectual agenda as sort of revitalizing or reconceptualizing conservatism. I see my intellectual agenda as revitalizing or reconceptualizing liberalism. Um, and secondly, I wrote a book that's called The Future and Its Enemies, which is about that, and is also about how it's so difficult to predict the future. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a little odd as a, bat, a cleanup hitter, but I have to say, I do, having been back at Princeton with this theory in mind, I did have to set the, I, my thoughts were, went back to the 1980 election, re, watching the election returns very quietly with one of my friends at a, at a, at Charter Club with a bunch of very upset people, and, and, and the following morning being greeted by a very, very snooty guy uh, who said to me in his snootiest manner, I mean, he's like a conservative stereotype of a liberal. He's the only person I knew who was actually like this. Uh, he said, isn't it terrible? Barry Goldwater is going to be chairman of the Intelligence Committee. To which I said, well, I like Barry Goldwater. So maybe I do belong on the panel after all. Uh, and, and I have uh, brought, despite having not been a Republican for quite a few years, I, and I have brought something in this box that I hope that conservatives of all stripes can agree on. Um, Main Street conservatives, the old-fashioned non-ideological party, uh, or uh, conservatives of small businesses and entrepreneurs, the populist Tea Party, Sarah Palin talk radio listening, angry conservatives, 
the traditionalist Burkean conservatives of moderation and temperance and respect for tradition, and of course my own classical liberal whatever we are, uh, who, who respect diversity and dynamism and innovation and plurality, and what do I have? The incandescent light bulb. In a conservative society, however you define it, it should not be possible for the U.S. Congress to pass a law banning incandescent light bulbs. <laughs> and it should certainly not be possible for that law to pass only because a plurality of Republicans, not uh, uh, because a goodly number, more than a dozen Republicans, joined with their Democratic colleagues in voting in favor of this ban on incandescent light bulbs and having it signed by the Republican president. Uh, but as of 2012, incandescent light bulbs will be illegal in the United States of America. Thank you, George W. Bush and friends. How did this happen? How did this happen in a world in which we all have, I have sat in this very room and been instructed by Harvey Rosen on the merits of what is now called cap and trade. Now cap and trade, the thing that they talk about global warming, has nothing to do with the contents of the concept of cap and trade. The idea of was this, you know, not terribly conservative idea, a, a very liberal, innovative idea of let's not specify what pollution amelioration technology should be used. Let's just set a level and let people trade and figure out the best way. Or let's set a tax and let businesses, consumers, whatever, decide what is the best way to do it. The one thing you do not do in such a world is you do not adopt a ban on incandescent light bulbs or something that says exactly how many miles per gallon certain cars should get or such and such. It does not mean, as David says, that you ignore environmental concerns, but it means that you have a much more dynamic, decentralized, pluralistic approach to it. And as I say, along the way, all the get-out-of-my-face populist conservatives who just think, why the hell is the government telling me what kind of light bulbs I can buy, uh, will come along for the ride. And the traditionalist Burkeans who realize that there might be some unarticulated wisdom in the idea that golden light is more beautiful than what they can measure with a light meter and the technocrats will tell you is exactly the same might come along. And the uh, mainstream business people who say, I just don't have time to figure out what is the best yeah, I know that there are fluorescent bulbs out there that won't make my store look hideous, but I am a small businessman with a, lots of constraints on my time. I don't have the time and money to spend. They'll come along as well. So how did this happen? Well, and this is, I think, what... I think the incandescent light bulb ban represents the, you know, the nadir of the decadent 
conservative Republican uh, movement, whatever you want to call it. First of all, big business was for it. All the light bulb manufacturers were for it. Of course, if you could get you know, your cheap commodity, no profit uh, uh, product outlawed in exchange for a much higher margin uh, uh, product from which you face much less competition from, say, cheap Chinese manufacturers, wouldn't you? Uh, the, the sort of what is grandiosely called national greatness conservatives or conservative snobs uh, weren't for it necessarily, but it was what a stupid thing to talk about. Only crazy libertarians and wacko talk radio people talk about things like incandescent light bulbs. It's not important. Those who are used, to, uh, those whose conservatism consists of wanting various mandates for virtuous behavior, some of them were for it, some of them were against it, but mostly they have established the thinking within the conservative movement that if something is good, the government should require it, and if something is bad, the government should ban it. So then if you say incandescent light bulbs are bad, they, they make us dependent on foreign oil, or they pollute the greenhouse, uh, cause the greenhouse effect, well, if it's bad, we should ban it. So they got together. And most of all, the pragmatist partisans of K Street in Washington we're all for it because, first of all, it sh we need an energy bill. We need to be able to say we passed an energy bill. And, by the way, we can do all these favors. And we also need to get on the right side of the environmental movement, so let's ban incandescent light bulbs because, you know, Amory Levin says that's a good idea. So all of this goes back to what are you trying to conserve? When we talk about the conservative movement, conservatism, unlike liberalism, is not an ideology with core values. Liberalism, and I've sat on panels like this talking about liberalism and what's the role of libertarians and classical liberals within liberalism and can we get along with modern sort of welfare state liberals and you know where do we have common grants and all this stuff. Liberalism can have a discussion like that because there are certain principles, certain general commitments that we share. Conservatism can just mean let's keep the status quo because that's conservative. So, uh, you know, if we, and, and you actually hear this, the, the Republican Party has now made itself the party of Medicare uh, because that's the status quo and, you know, keep the government's hands off my Medicare. Um, the con or you can be trying to conserve particular values. You can be trying to conserve a particular expressions or forms or institutions uh, uh, that express those values. Or you can be trying to conserve, as I would say is how I fall into this category, certain underlying rules that allow for quite a disruptive and in many ways liberal and pluralist society. So I want to leave that discussion and move over to another sort of in the pragmatic world, which is the question of what is a movement. We talk about the conservative movement. And the I have pages and pages and pages of notes on thinking about what is a movement, which I will not share with you because we'll be here all night. But one of the characteristics of the conservative movement as it existed uh, from 
the mid 40s um, was what was called policy entrepreneurship and also intellectual entrepreneurship. So people would see a problem. I mean, I worked many, many years for the Reason Foundation, Reason Magazine, and Reason Magazine was born with the idea that libertarians and in and, and the early days objectivists needed to have some sort of way to find each other and to reach out. And nowadays you could just start a blog, but it was much harder in 1968 when they started it. And it was also uh, it developed the idea that the word, pri that privatization was an idea that needed to be worked on and understood and spread. And so there were entrepreneurs who started this and raised money and, and a lot, there was a lot of that sort of thing. Today we see less policy entrepreneurship of the sort, of the late, Irving Kristol, who recently passed away, uh, was a great exemplar of, and far more what I would call media entrepreneurship. It's very easy to plunge into the conservative, to start a conservative publication, be part of the conservative media. And that media entrepreneurship exists in a world in which politics is entertainment, in which pol people po follow political discussion the way they follow sports. And so it's very much about personalities and who's up and who's down and what dirt can we find on this person or that person. And this is across the board. But it changes the environment. And so therefore, my last thought is that we as public intellectuals, regardless of political persuasion, um, face a difficult question in the world, which is where is this place for long-form, careful thinking. Uh, perhaps it's in the academy, um, but then how, what is the method of, of transmission? And here I would just name two names of people whose work is worth much better known, uh, um, being much better known than I think it probably is to those of you in this room. How many of you no, not his blogging, but his work on crime uh, by Mark Kleiman at UCLA. Now, Mark is a great guy and a hyper, hyper-partisan Democrat, but he is also one of the most careful, innovative, and deeply informed thinkers on crime and punishment today. He has a new book out called When Brute Force Fails. If this book had come out in 1978, every single one of us would have read it by now. And we would all know about it because that was the kind of world, not just because crime was a salient in 1978, but because that was the uh, world we live in. And then the other person is, is Luigi Zangales, who probably more of you have seen because he writes a lot in the Wall Street Journal and other places, who has written really important work on the financial crisis and the danger the U.S. faces of falling into sort of a crony capitalist uh, world uh, of the sort he left in Italy. So I think the challenge for us, regardless of whether we're worried about politics, in which case the question is, what do you do when you get this political power, or whether we're just worried about what's right, is how do we uh, not only conduct, but also spread careful, analytical, thoughtful, uh, engaged research in this world in which we have very fragmented media and a lot more politics as entertainment. Thank you. Thanks. I'll just uh, wrap it up with a few thoughts, and then we can get to questions and answers. I, th I think the panelists uh, are 
kind of all struggling with three different areas um, in terms of the future of conservatism that I just heard at least. The first is institutions, and clearly there's a question of the institutions created uh, for conservatives, by conservatives in the 1970s, uh, have they outlived their function? And the Republican Party, I think, took the hardest hits. Uh, the Republican Party leadership uh, during most of the papers. It sounds a little bit like Democrats complaining uh, in, in the 1980s and even a little bit in the 1990s about kind of the role of uh, machine unionists and, and kind of old-style democratic, um, uh, you know, political elites when there was a younger new voices that wanted to break into the party. Uh, so that's one area, clearly, uh, that will have to be addressed. The second is ideas. Uh, here, the question, as David said very well, that kind of are the main ideas in conservatism built around problems uh, that are no longer the prevalent problems in American politics. Conservatism comes of age in the 1970s, uh, or the movement comes together in the 1970s, uh, but it addressed a set of questions and a set of issues which might not be uh, the ones that are dominant anymore. And then you have an intellectual crisis, so to speak, where you need uh, new ideas, new questions put forth. Uh, here, I think, the panelists have some of the ideas. I mean, you could hear them circulating, big divisions uh, among the people speaking uh, today, uh, but the question is, how do these come together? Uh, and, and, and that's where work needs to be done. Third is kind of a question of the electorate. And uh, did conservatism of the 70s and 80s put together a coalition uh, that is no longer the best coalition for the conservative movement? Back then, it was a coalition of uh, religious conservatives, evangelical conservatives, uh, kind of working class, middle class, uh, white social conservatives who had become disaffected with the Democratic Party, uh, neoconservative intellectuals who kind of came together in the famous story of the 1970s and 80s. Uh, and now, should conservatism be looking elsewhere? suburban, educated voters, immigrant voters, uh, how could it re rebuilt around a new coalition? Uh, in general, I would just kind of add, uh, one of the things you learn when you study political history, such as Kevin and I do, is things don't change as dramatically uh, as, as they seem to be at, at the time. So, um, you know, there's all kinds of reasons to expect that liberalism will now have a rough road. We've seen it already. I mean, I think kind of the trajectory uh, of some of the legislation uh, indicates that this is not necessary, uh, necessarily a liberal era, a new liberal progressive era in American politics. Institutions and policies are very hard to dismantle. Uh, public opinion does not change uh, in, in huge swings. Realigning elections don't happen anymore, and there's questions if they ever happen, according to political scientists. Liberals learned this in the 30s and 40s. That's what a lot of FDR was about. How do you build federal policies around a nation that still had many conservative uh, ideas and institutions? Conservatives in the 80s and 90s did the same. Look through Ronald Reagan's presidency. This is not uh, a president by 1982 and 83 who feels that he can just transform everything that is. He's backing off on certain issues and kind of uh, uh, regearing uh, around certain institutions and policies that will con continue to exist in American politics. His social security battle in the early 80s is a great example of that. Obama has even made statements that the Reagan era isn't over. 
Uh, he said, what Reagan ushered in was a skepticism toward government solutions to every problem, a suspicion of command and control, top-down engineering. I don't think that has changed. I think that's a lasting legacy of the Reagan era and the conservative movement starting with Goldwater. But I do think we are seeing an end to the knee-jerk reaction toward, uh, uh, toward the New Deal and big government. I'd throw out other issues that were not discussed that I think conservatives will need to deal with. One is the kind of strength of the far right. Uh, that has emerged uh, in, in the recent, uh, in the last two months. Uh, and, and I think there can be an argument that ultimately um, that they can have a damaging effect if conservatives really want to uh, engage in a process of rebuilding their party. How do you contain uh, that element of the party, which might really be a fringe element, uh, but still in this new media environment can be incredibly vocal and, and, and help define uh, what conservatism is to many Americans. And the second to end is the political process itself. Um, the political process has certain traits that make it hard to change policies or to change uh, uh, kind of the direction of, of a movement uh, from the power of interest groups uh, who uh, are, you know, going to make sure things don't change too much in Washington to the nature of our new media, uh, which favors certain kind of ideas over others to the campaign finance system. Uh, and often I don't think conservatives or liberals give enough attention uh, to the role of the process, uh, both in rebuilding movements and in governance when people have power. Uh, and I think that should be another issue that's on the table. So I'll conclude with that uh, and throw it open to questions. Thank you. How about right in front? Let's start right there. Thank you. Uh, I've heard what I would describe as purists and coalitionists this afternoon. And the purists have given us Obama and some cool magazines. The coalitionists, unless they can put together some group that can win an election, we're nowhere. How will the coalitionists take control of the apparatus of winning elections? I'll leave that to David. Do you want to, how will you take power? Um, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if there are any fans of Monty Python here, but there's a, um, a, a sketch where um, a, a character uh, finds his way to a room for hitting in the head lessons. And I think politics, uh, people are, uh, not in a mind to be coalition builders, uh, politics administers hitting in the head lessons. And let me give a couple of examples um, drawn from political parties I've been very close to, the Canadian conservatives who have now returned to power and are governing very effectively, and the British conservatives who so soon will. Um, in 19, Canada was governed by the conservatives through the 1980s and early 90s. They did a, a number of very important conservative reforms. But in 1993, there was a tremendous fracture of the Canadian coalition, uh, Conservative Coalition. The, the main Conservative Party dropped to two seats in the Parliament. A uh, Western-based party uh, formed a rump. They, they, just, they were at each other's throats uh, for a decade, in, in the course of which time the Liberals won an unprecedented series of majority governments. Um, through all of this, a number of us, I was very active in this, urged these two parties to get together to see their differences. But what we were constantly told was the issues of principle were so fundamental, so vital, that no realignment could be considered. 
Eventually, however, after enough hitting in the head lessons, people decided that these fundamental issues of principle were not so vital. And just so you can get a sense of how this looks from a little bit of a distance, what were these fundamental differences of principle? They were the composition of the Canadian Senate. Uh, now, after a dozen years, it just doesn't look worth being out of power over the issue of the composition of the Canadian Senate. The issue was never solved, by the way. They, everyone just got bored with it. Um, and I think that is going to be the future of the Republican Party, um, that we are, going to, we are going to exhaust all of the alternatives. You know, I think a defeated party goes through four phases, any party. The first phase is, we didn't really lose. The other guys cheated. They got a charismatic candidate. That's not fair. Uh, 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 the, the, sec the second phase is, okay, we lost, but only because the voters are idiots. Uh, the, thir the third phase is, okay, we lost, and maybe the voters aren't idiots, but there's nothing we can do about it without betraying our sacred principles. And phase four is, well, maybe there's something we can do. Now, I think conservatives and Republicans are in the United States are still very much at, at phase one. Um, and that the object of politics is to accelerate the progress toward phase four, and I think that begins by saying that this co coalition that we've got of white, non-poor, non-college Americans, it's just whatever it does in 2010 when the issue is a referendum on Medicare, uh, is this is not the future. And that will become increasingly evident. And then we will have, and then I think there will be kind of a contest between the kind of politics that Ross recommends, uh, which, would, which would emphasize a you know, very... Um, expansionist government, a lot of, um, of, of generous government programs, and also um, retention of traditional social conservatism and an attempt to reach out to um, uh, immigrants through, because that, that really, the math requires you to have a very open-ended policy toward immigration. And the kind of uh, politics I'm recommending, which finds the hope not in socially conservative um, down-market newcomers, but in uh, less socially conservative, more affluent, highly, more highly educated um, suburbanites, college graduates of every race. If I could just say one thing, I actually am a coalitionist. I just envision, uh, and anybody, in, believe me, the libertarian movement, they consider me, you know, quite wet. Um, uh, and, and, uh, but I just envision a coalition that isn't necessarily the Republican Party coalition. And, and, and I believe such coalitions emerge from the culture. And I would give you, and, and the, the way people, I mean, I, what I, if you ask me what could, I, if I wanted to do one thing, what I would like to do is break the hold that technocratic top-down thinking has on American politics of all sorts. And contrary to what President Obama said in whatever quote you read there, which I bet he said before he was president, um, right now we're in a, a, a hyper-technocratic moment where everything is supposed to be planned top-down. And I think that that is something that Americans of many different stripes are deeply uncomfortable with. And not as a matter of me telling you a theory about why that doesn't work, although that will appeal to a certain turn of mind, but when it comes down to the light bulbs. Uh, and, and I think you can build a kind of coalition on that uh, by speaking to people's lives and the way they actually live and, and the decisions they, they want to be able to make in their lives. The light bulbs are terrific. Can, can I, I'm, I'm, I know it's horrible to give three answers to one question, but since I, I just 
think I should say to to, to David, since I I appreciate that he's gearing up for the grand war of all against all, the from Douthat battle for the soul of the GOP in 2027, I actually think that there's, there are maybe 2037, I mean, depending, but but there's, I actually think that there's a a lot less um, daylight between the two of us on many, many specific policy questions, and I think that I, I would resist that I, I mean I, I agree with David that there are on broad there are broad sort of coalitional questions facing Republican politicians, especially in national elections. And the question of whether you try and win back Greenwich or try and win some upwardly mobile Hispanics in the suburbs of Albuquerque is a big that's a big question and that is going to guide a lot of policy thinking. That being said, this is it's a country of three hundred million people. You like both. And I like, you like both. You, you, it's possible any political party, as long as we have a two-party system, and I'm not always convinced that a two-party system is fantastic, but as long as we have a two-party system, any party is going to have to go after both. And given where the Republican Party is today, there are plausible ways to go after both. A lot of those, you know, educated suburban voters that David is talking about actually have a fair amount in common with certain upwardly mobile working class voters who have a couple years of college education and are in a slightly more down market suburb and so on. And if you look at, for instance, like Bob McDonald's campaign in Virginia for governor right now, now this is a campaign where McDonald is getting hammered on the social issues by the Democrat because of a, a thesis he wrote 15, 20, 15, 16 years ago that partook of, let's say, the extreme rhetoric of late 1980s evangelical um, conservatism. And so McDonald's taking, taking a hammering. However, McDonald is responding by emphasizing sort of his technocratic side and some of the issues that, that, David, that David is talking about, issues of transportation, let's say, and issues, issues that pocketbook issues in, in Virginia. McDonald is winning, leading in the polls by five to nine points in spite of this hammering, and he's taken a hammering, but he hasn't said, well, I'm no longer going to be pro-life. He's still the pro-life candidate. He's still the anti-gay marriage candidate and so on. And all, all of this suggests to me that some of these, some of these big divisions are a little more illusory, perhaps, than they seem to seem to us sitting right here. And again, it's a, it's a diverse country, and you want... I, I don't... I, I guess I would say I'm a lot less confident today than I was two years ago when I co-wrote a book about the future of the Republican Party about what specifically the Republican Party should do, which is why I think you need specifics, but you need multiple specifics embodied by multiple candidates trying things out. It's politics is an experimental science, and so is coalition building, so... Hi, I'm, I'm Darrell McHale Brooks from uh, Today's News NJ. Uh, have you ever took a look at going in uh, the conservative movement, Republican Party, going into the African-American inner city areas for support? Uh, because when you look what's going on in New Jersey, um, uh, a number of African-Americans are not supporting Corzine in the Democratic Party. Uh, when they look at what happened in the uh, primary election, uh, with uh, Hillary Clinton and uh, Obama. Uh, inner city African Americans supported Obama. The uh, suburban, I guess, white democratic power structure from all the way from Corazon, Frank Lautenberg, and, and Menendez supported Hillary Clinton. And a lot of African Americans were very upset with that. And uh, I believe that eventually that the Republican Party would have to go inside the inner city African-American for support and deal with the social issues. 
because uh, when you look in the city of like Camden, Newark, Jersey City, Elizabeth, uh, all controlled by the Democratic Party. They're 50 to 60 percent dropout rate controlled by the Democratic Party. Uh, New Jersey has 10,000 kids locked up. 85 percent are African-American kids controlled by the Democratic Party. And a number of us have been talking to the Republican Party, and, but they seem not to get it. It seems like they're afraid to go into the inner city areas and talk to African-Americans. Uh, what do you suggest? Because uh, there's a number of African-Americans that will not vote for Democratic Party at all, but they're not going to vote for uh, uh, Christie because they look at him as this dark Vader prosecutor guy. And so, <laughs> and also there, there's an inner city, it's a suburban whites uh, from the Republican Party uh, are still afraid to go in the inner city. It's not like, you know, you're, you're not, you know, you're in Mars and there's Jupiter. You know, you're right down the street from each other. And you're still afraid to go in, <laughs> you know. So that's a big problem. And somehow the Republican Party, because I'm, I'm a libertarian, and because and me and another guy are running for a state assembly, because the Democratic Party, white power structure, uh, have a problem with men, black males under the age of 40, uh, running for office. And then you go to the Republican Party, and it's somewhat almost the same way. Uh, all white. Uh, <laughs> so you talk about running for office, and they look at you like you're funny. So that's why uh, a number of African Americans are going into uh, probably independent parties and libertarians because um, there's a problem with, uh, we view as a problem with male, African-American males that want leadership. I'd like to take it. I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I mean, I, I think that the, you know, the big, big problem facing the Republican Party with black voters right now is twofold. It's the fact, you know, one problem is Barack Obama. I mean, in, in national elections, it's not, I think, reasonable for the Republican Party to expect that 2012 is going to be a big year for massively increasing their share of the black vote. Um, and the other problem is related to Barack Obama and related to the fact that the, you know, legitimately held reputation of the Republican Party is as a party based in the white South. And I think that um, that, you know, has a twofold effect. It has, uh, I, I think, an effect that's somewhat unfair to Republicans where there's, I think, just sort of a an, a cultural aversion among black Americans to vote vote for a party that is the party of white Southerners, largely. But then there's the fair side of that, which is that, um, you know, however much um, I think conservatives talk about the importance of a colorblind society and so on, it remains the case that there is a, lo a large strand of what you might call the politics of white resentment. Um, I don't think it. I don't think it's quite right to call it racism. Like I don't think when when Glenn Beck talks about how. Barack Obama doesn't like white people. I don't think that's racism. I think that that is the politics of sort of white anxiety in a way, I think you could say. And, and, but that's a big part right now of the temper of conservatism. It's what you hear on talk radio and so on. It's not that blacks are inferior. It's that, you know, we're worried about a black president, you know, sticking it to us. I think you, you, you almost hinted, but you were so in the New Jersey context that, uh, the other thing is that the Republican farm team for finding local candidates has traditionally been prosecutors. And now, it's not necessarily true where you are because you're in a one-party democratic place. But insofar as prosecutors who may be, you know, 
you know, your typical white Republican prosecutor uh, is maybe a little um, tone deaf or, or whatever. You know, th there's this combination of, even beyond the politics of resentment, there's the seeing them perhaps as the enemy or them seeing the, the constituents as the enemy. And then there's also just the Republicans are tend to be, you know, not so not so comfortable, you know, as you said, and that is a big problem and, and it works both ways because, you know, if somebody's uncomfortable with you, you're going to be uncomfortable with them. And I think your, your point of trying to go to the party and say, look, I'd like to be a candidate, you know, that's where it's going to have to start, but somebody's going to have to be receptive to that. Well, let me, I mean, but Virginia earlier broke, brought up Mark Kleinman, um, yeah. who's um, a professor who's written a lot about um, written a lot about crime and written about a lot about prison reform and criminal justice reform and so on. And I tend to think that when it comes to the relationship between the Republican Party and African Americans, what you need are Republican politicians who are interested in doing kind of a Nixon goes to China on some of these criminal justice prison reform issues and being and sort of making a symbolic but also a substantive gesture towards the black community and saying, look, we we acknowledge that the tough on crime policies that we supported that were perhaps the right policies at the time have created a situation where too many young Americans and especially young black Americans are incarcerated and therefore we need to be willing to talk about prison reform. Like, I think that there are things that brave and smart Republican politicians could do on those fronts that could go a long way towards improving relationship, relations between the Republican Party and the black community. But that's, you know, it's hard to do. I mean, so much of, Ameri so much of American voting is cultural. I mean, and this is, you know, this is David's point, I think, about sort of, um, you know, where, the t where talk radio is right now. You know, that's sort of the expression of kind of cultural anxieties. And those kind of cultural anxieties make it very hard to imagine a Republican Party that gets a big share of the black vote. It's, it's, so it's, it's a big challenge. Uh, and well, and you mentioned that, uh, that you're a libertarian, and I think Ross is onto something in, in talking about these sorts of libertarian solutions or, or more libertarian solutions uh, in in reforming prisons and, and also uh, readdressing the question of the necessity of existing drug laws and the way that they're they're prosecuted and, and enforced. Uh, and I think that this comes back to the, the first question in, in talking about how to build a coalition. Well, you have to address people's concrete interests. And that's one of the things that over the last 10 years the Republican Party has been terrible at doing, uh, for the most part, as I see it, uh, which is that it, it mostly gives people uh, interesting slogans or it, it tells them things that they like to hear, but when it comes time to actually providing something for them in exchange for their support, uh, they, they don't really have anything to offer. And I think communities that are especially not traditionally inclined to support Republicans in the first place see that and have no interest in going there. Sam, you have the mic and you're All the right. chair of the committee. Okay, so, <laughs> right. As chair of the committee, I get to ask at least one question. So I wanted to come back to this one point that's arisen uh, in the last few months of um, rhetoric from the most audible voices on the right, the far right, um, this phrase, keep your government hands off my Medicare. So this sounds 
like something easy to make fun of, but if I, listening to all of you today, it occurs to me that there is some feeling in there that despite being factually wrong and not surviving scrutiny and, and being a topic of late night fodder, uh, late night comedy, there seems to be something real that's being said there that could be made more legitimate and you know, made into some, a real statement rather than an idiotic statement. But I wanted to come back to this four-point plan that David Frum went through really quickly, which is uh, basically uh, having a relevant economic message, integrating environmental thinking, rethinking uh, social issues, and integrity and competence in administration. Now, I have to say that if I look at the, the substance of what politicians at a national level are saying, and I look down that checklist, my first reaction is, maybe it's because I'm a partisan, but my first reaction is, I can think of a lot of Democrats who like, who, you know, who meet not all, but a lot of those criteria. And I guess, but at the same time, I can see why this is something that seems to be heretical, because if some national figure were to pop up and say, go down this list in the Republican Party, I would think that person might be forcibly ejected and treated quite poorly. So maybe I'm making assumptions here, but I'm curious about how the conservative movement is going to get there from here, in the sense that there's this very audible faction that would hear those things, and as I think was mentioned earlier, the response would be, well, you're not a real Republican. And so I'm just curious, I just wanna hear responses about how you think conservatives will get there. And why, not, and why shouldn't conservatives vote for Democrats? Hmm. That was weird, I know, sorry. Um, <laughs> well, let me give it a, a try. Um, uh, I, I'm a great believer in political parties. I think they're really important, um, and I think they are they are the mechanisms that prevent um, politics from turning into political theory. I'm nothing, no, no disrespect to political theory, but uh, you do need to aggregate people together, and parties parties do that. Um, so that's why you don't uh, do it. Um, one of the uh, one of the uh, and even when you are mad at your party, one of the um, to make another Canadian reference the. First Canadian Prime Minister was also the creator of the Canadian Party system. At the time, this was a very new idea. And there's a story about him approaching a likely-looking young lawyer in a town where they wanted to find a candidate and approaching that person to come to you know, run for office and then come to Ottawa and do the thing of pledging in advance his support to a party leader, which was a new concept. And the young person said rather primly, uh, well, Mr. McDonald, of course I will always support you when I think you are right. George McDonald said, anybody of ordinary decency will support me when I'm right. What I need are people who will support me when I'm wrong. <laughs> That's party government, and I think it's, 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 it's important. Um, uh, on, on, um, look, that list of, of four things, those are modifiers. Uh, I mean, there is a core Republican message of economic liberty and national security. That, that is the, that's the, the party stock and trade, and that is the enduring contribution of the conservative, um, uh, of the conservative intellectual achievement of the 1970s and 80s. Now, the, now, how do you make this relevant to a modern world? Those are the four modifiers that I, I propose. Um, on your question about Medicare, I don't think anybody ever actually said that. I think actually that's a, that's a kind of joke that comes from the other side to mock um, the Republican Party's newfound uh, devotion to Medicare. I think a sign that we did actually see at the rallies, uh, and that I think does eloquently speak to what the concerns of a lot of people there were, was fix old, no new. Uh, that without knowing the numbers, that was without my idea. what. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's, but you mean to really fix it. I mean, they, they meant more money for old. Um, uh, and that, I mean, if you are a, a Medicare beneficiary, you are at some level aware that this system, that this program has 
huge fiscal problems. Um, and when anyone proposes to uh, create anything new that will be a that will demand revenues from the state, you know that, it, that you are the most likely target. I mean, you've got a program that is already, that it has a huge, I think the present, it's estimated the present value of the uh, Medicare deficit is in the 30 to $40 trillion range. If you bring all obligations forward and all revenues forward and uh, present value them, there's a gap of 30 to $40 trillion. Uh, so you would be unenthusiastic about it. I think that is what you are hearing. Um, from a lot of America's retirees and why we're seeing this dramatic swing back to the Republican Party um, uh, in the um, oldest part of the demographic. The problem is, uh, can the Republican Party have a future for itself as a defender of the most fiscally troubled part of the welfare state? Uh, is, can that, is that what you can be as a concern? And then to take my, not the real Ross, but my imaginary Ross, um, <laughs> uh, uh, that, that there, there is actually, it wouldn't be crazy to build a political party that said that, yes, we're going to, we're going to do that. Uh, but uh, that's not the political part future that I'm recommending. No, but I mean, it, it's true that in a sense, the, the, Medicare, the, the Medicare argument being employed by Republicans are a vindication of an idea that I have expressed and David has expressed too, that Republicans will have problems, Republicans who want to run against the New Deal will always have serious political problems because the new deal the new deal structure of government and medicare is obviously a post new deal program but it's folded into that idea about the existence of a welfare state that idea is remains tremendously politically potent and so the republicans defending medicare are in a sense yeah i mean they they are taking they're they're taking certainly some of my advice they're just taking it in stupid and destructive directions, which is something that any political pundit has to you know has to has to live with i suppose but i mean I think the defense of medicare is a is a disaster for republicans um for excuse me, I think the defense of Medicare is a disaster for conservatives because, in spite of my comment about the movement and the party, this is a place I think where clearly you, you've not heard any serious movement conservatives saying this is a good thing. Michael Steele's you know seniors' bill of rights and so on. Um, if if Republicans cannot find a way to restrain the growth of Medicare, then all of our talk about low taxes and small government and and so and limited government, whatever you want to say, goes out the window in over the next fifteen to twenty years. Um, but I don't have a you know brilliant answer for for the, for the, that trap. It is funny that we didn't talk about health care because I was on a panel exactly like this in 1993. I mean, not as different people were. And what's the future of conservatism now that, you know, the Cold War is over and, and Bill Clinton is in office and, you know, we talked about different strands. But the one thing everybody agreed was we didn't want a national takeover of health care, federal takeover of health care. And I think that's probably true today as well. The different strands sort of agree that what they're against, they may not agree on what they're for. Time for a couple more questions. Um, you've all defined, or many of you seem to agree that the status quo of conservatism could be called talk radio conservatism. And I'm wondering if any of the panelists can speak as to how we've arrived at that state. Why, why it is that the recent troubles of the electoral, of the, the recent electoral troubles of the Republican Party have led to the ascendancy of Limbaugh and other uh, elements of that talk radio um, conservatism. And specifically, um, was it the result of any sort of conscious effort by Democrats to um, define that as the, the leadership of the party? Yeah, well, uh, 
actually, this is a, a knowable question. It did begin as a conscious effort by Democrats. That was one of the – Paul Begala and James Carville did a survey um, – I think in January of, of 2009, and dis- discovered uh, the amazing unpopularity with women and young people of talk radio generally and Rush Limbaugh in particular. Um, I, had, I had an example of this. I was I was actually sort of a gallows humor story, but I, I was at um, uh, I guess a wake or a reception at, uh, um, after the funeral of a woman who had just completed a very happy marriage. She truly loved her husband, and she, she was very choked up about. Um, uh, saying goodbye to him, but, but she said, at one point, wiped away in tears and said, well, one good thing, I won't have to listen to Rush Limbaugh anymore. <laughs> um, uh, they got he was that. a big Laura Ingram. <laughs> they they so. got that in their survey. The problem, so that, the problem is the Republicans then completely obliged. Um, that, that, that there was a moment that Rush Limbaugh then began to assert himself because this is in his interest too. I mean, one of the things I keep saying is Rush Limbaugh and Barack Obama share an identity of interests. Uh, what is good for one is good for the other and vice versa. They are the two most intimate political allies in American life. They need each other desperately. And one of the things you do in a situation like that, if you're a Republican, is you have a sister-soldier moment. And not on, a, not, not on you don't want to alienate Rush's audience, but on something where he says something really dumb, uh, which he does hourly. Uh, uh, you, you separate yourself. You don't denounce them. You don't denounce them. You just say, no, I, I don't go along with that. And then you stick to it. And, and when one after another Republican couldn't do that, um, the result followed. One more thing about what has happened here. Because, because a lot of what has happened in talk radio is relevant. To, comes out of the, the economic crisis of talk radio. It is not an illusion that what you're hearing on the radio today and from Fox 2 is more extreme, more radical, um, more inflammatory than anything you heard in the 1990s. And part of it is, look, the weakness of the Republican... It used to be that Rush Limbaugh actually did listen if the elder George Bush or even um, Bob Dole called him and said, please don't do that or tone it down. He would once upon a time listen, and now he doesn't. Um, Sean Hannity still would. Um, uh, Glenn Beck, of course, is not in that game. But there's, there's, there's something that has happened that is very different. Uh, we have seen a collapse in the revenues of talk radio by about 30 to 40 percent. I had a reporter work for my site who talked to people at Clear Channel and did a lot of good investigative work. All these numbers are proprietary, but you can find out some of them. They've had a, a, a revenue collapse, which has caused familiar things, the drift to satellite radio, um, the downturn in the economy, the special demise of auto sales, which are very important Mm -hmm. to talk radio. The auto market is a big source uh, of advertising, was. uh, But also, advertising is just worth less per thousand person than it used to be because the internet has taught advertisers that advertising isn't effective as people thought it was before the internet came along. So just a thousand users of your medium, whatever it is, are less valuable than they were 15 years ago. As talk radio's revenues drop, as, you, um, as it becomes um, less valuable per second, you need to int- maximize your audience. You can't make your audience get bigger because there's a finite demand for talk radio. But what you can do is take your existing audience and get them to listen longer. Uh, you can turn a 15-minute read, uh, appointment into a 30-minute appointment. And there's a group of people who I think are called P1s, the most dedicated talk radio people. And if you can get them to listen, you, know, if you can extend their stay on the program, that really gooses your numbers. Um, when Rush Limbaugh says he has 30 million or whatever it is listeners a week, he's counting every return by one of those people as a separate visit. Uh, how do you get them? You need to give them more intense thrills. 
Uh, and uh, so whereas in the 1980s you could say somebody was a liberal, and in the 1990s you would say they were socialists, today you have to say they're a Nazi. Uh, because you, uh, uh, you just have to make it that much more exciting. In a way, it works a little bit like pornography, you know, you, that, that uh, you have to, you know, that what, what was exciting you know, to the readers of Playboy magazine in 1960 was just not enough to bring them back in 1980, the same phenomenons at work. One last question we have, and keep it short. Hi. Thank you so much for speaking to us today. I wanted to ask you all to comment on what you thought the relationship between the conservative movement and or the GOP, what its relationship to corporations, large international mega corporations, ought to be. So not what, in fact, that relationship is, but how that relationship ought to be thought of and how one might uh, go about addressing the issues that come up. In particular, one might think that the uh, fundamental conservative ideal, uh, that big government is something to be skeptical of, to be somewhat queasy about, that that sense might apply equally, if not uh, more strongly, to these large corporations, since they are concentrations of wealth and power par excellence. So I wonder if you would all comment on um, how you think that issue might be addressed. Well, let me, let me suggest what the, maybe the only good news um, that you can take out of aspects of the current sort of talk radio climate in the Republican Party is, is that I think you're seeing more skepticism towards big business and particularly towards the relationships between big business and big government in the Republican Party than would have been true four, six, or ten years ago. And, um, you know, I can say all kinds of deplorable things about Glenn Beck, but there is a germ of the Glenn Beck phenomenon that I think should be the basis of the conservative critique of the Obama administration's economic agenda. And it is a critique of what you might call corporatism and industrial policy and the relationship, you know, what goes wrong when the government doesn't, doesn't even have to take over businesses. It's what goes wrong when the government picks winners and losers in the marketplace and how, you know, big business favored insiders game government for their own ends and so on. So I think that there is, in fact, and this is, again, a place where this is a place where conservative politicians should be able to take actual specific ideas from, say, the smartest libertarians and put them into practice as, an, as a policy agenda that represents an effective critique of, of what's happening um, in Washington today. The problem is it's a long way from Glenn Beck ranting about how the murals at Rockefeller Center show how the industrialists were all in cahoots with the New Deal and so on to this kind of what you might call libertarian populism. I mean, I think in a way, like, you can talk about the divide in the Republican Party between sort of socially conservative populists and libertarians and so on. I think that divide was a lot more important before the financial crisis and before the deficit went where it is today and before the stimulus bill and so on. I think today there's actually a real opportunity for a smart libertarian populism that says we're going to be on the side of middle-class America against the corrupt marriage of big government and big business. But you're not going to get there just by talking about Barack Obama's birth certificate, for instance. I will uh, oh, yeah. well, thanks for your question. Uh, I agree with Ross that there should be a much more uh, critical uh, look at uh, the relationship between uh, corporations and government, and there should be much more uh, criticism directed 
at uh, the effects of corporations on the natural constituencies of the Republican Party, small firms, uh, small towns, uh, the people uh, who who make up the, the backbone of the party, uh, who in their immediate daily lives uh, encounter these corporations as not at all uh, or not not solely beneficial or, or uh, helpful institutions, but as institutions with their own interests that sometimes work very much to the detriment of, of the public as a whole. So, uh, yeah, thanks. Let me, let me say a word on behalf of, of business, even big business. Um, the, the goal, after all, of every small business is to become a big business. Um, my Republican Party is a party of markets, uh, but it's also a party that um, admires business acumen um, and believes that business success is entitled to keep most of its rewards. Um, we, we can focus a lot of these issues in very concrete ways. And let me just give you one example of something where I think the issue um, of the relationship becomes very intense. And that is what has happened with the cap-and-trade system as it has moved through the Democratic Congress. Uh, President Obama, with cap-and-trade as with health care, allowed Congress uh, to write the law, which is a, a huge mistake, and is suggesting that he may be actually an, that the problem with him may not be that he's this Nazi figure, but he actually is an ominously weak president who defers too much to the congressional leadership. What happens in cap-and-trade system, the most important question in, in cap-and-trade is what happens to the, the allotments. Everyone is going, there's going to be, a, you're allowed to produce a certain amount of, of the prohibited substance or the constrained substance, in this case carbon dioxide. How do you get the right to use that allotment? And the, the, the theory of it is you auction it off. That is not going to happen. It's, a gr it's great. I forget now the page number, but it's great to pay a visit to the page in the bill where you can see what they say about this. It's just blank. There are like a couple little lines, and then, you know, it's like a student paper, you know, the details to be provided by Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> uh, TK, TK. Um, Nancy Pelosi has mused that perhaps 25% of the allotments uh, would, be, uh, would be sold, but the rest she's not so sure. They're going to be given away, and that seems to be the plan, which has wrecked, first wrecked the president's fiscal plan, which was dependent on money from those allotments. But second, we have just created a new form of currency, and it is going to be given away uh, to utility companies. And, and then this gets subtle, but um, not all utilities emit the same amount of carbon for the same amount of electricity they generate. So those utility companies that rely more heavily on, say, nuclear or natural gas or hydropower are going to have a little bump. They're going to, have, they're going to be able to sell some of their allotment, and you have, you have created this new currency and given it away to the utility companies, i.e. to their shareholders and their customers, to be distributed in some way. I think Republicans should be on the rampage about that. Um, if, if uh, and conservatives should be. Uh, I mean, I prefer a carb I, I believe in a carbon tax. I, I, I oppose cap and trade because despite its blackboard elegance, I knew this would happen. Um, well, in the fence of the blackboard, the blackboard actually says under these circumstances you should have a tax, not a... Right. <laughs> but but we should be saying that, that if uh, the air belongs to the people, and if carbon dioxide is a bad thing, if it's a problem, um, and if, if we have to constrain the right to... Then the revenues from that belong to the Treasury. They shouldn't be given, given away. Uh, and... Uh, and, and this is an example of everything that is awful about the Democratic Party, that it is, it is a party that underneath all of its redistributionate, compassionate language is, in fact, a part, an aggregation of selfish interests. Well, on that note, <laughs> let's thank our guests Here. for a great discussion.